Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm David Ekstrom. This podcast is brought to you by Massey Ferguson, a proud supporter of Century Farms and those building a lasting farming legacy. Hello, I'm Darren Parker, Vice President of Massey Ferguson North America. And on behalf of everyone here at Massey Ferguson, I'd like to congratulate every Century Farm. We build straightforward and dependable equipment for farms like these and people like you. The people working hard to build something that lasts. The people who were born to farm. So from all of us at Massey Ferguson, thank you for inspiring us with your hard work and dedication. Enjoy the podcast. At Massey Ferguson, we're proud of our 175-year history of straightforward and dependable machinery. We're proud to build tractors and hay equipment that help feed the world year after year. But most of all, we're proud to support farmers. Always have been, always will be. Check out our entire lineup of farmer-first tractors, equipment, and implements today at MasseyFerguson.com or visit your local dealer to learn more. For nearly 75 years, Eleanor Arnold has been discovering and documenting the history of the family's 200-year-old Indiana farm. Every farm has a history, but the story of Arnold Farm in Rushville, Indiana is preserved better than most. From letters, diaries, and photos to a saddlebag medicine kit and furniture, the Arnolds believed in saving every slice of their history. Successful farming editors Lori Vidord and Madeline Ostendorf spent the day with the family to hear their story. Well, he was born in the Isle of Wight and was a, a grown man. He was in his 30s. He was one of a family of 12. And he, he, they said the taxes were high and things were opening up here in the United States. And they thought that, that uh, in fact, he had a sister who'd already emigrated. And he, they thought that uh, they would come over and see about buying some land and, and moving to the United States. And so in 1820, he, he, he with his brother Richard, unmarried brother Richard, and a hired man named George Stretch, boarded the ship, the boat, uh, ship I guess in that case, and came over and lit in landed in Philadelphia, stopped and visited his sister, and then came down and they bought a boat and floated down the Ohio River. They were aimed towards what is now Illinois. They had had, there was lots of literature out about, and people had been reading, he'd been doing a lot of reading, and he thought that's where they should go. They stopped at Cincinnati for provisions, and a doctor, Drake, who was a, known in Cincinnati history as a historian and a medical doctor, said, oh, you don't want to go there. He said, that's, that's got swamps. That's unhealthy, very unhealthy. Malaria was a, a big problem with pioneers, and they did not understand the, the, the point that mosquitoes played in it, but they certainly knew that if you were in swampy land, you were much more likely to come down with it. So Dr. Drake suggested that they come to this new land that was just opening up, that's now Indiana. So they sold their boat, and bought horses and got a man who could run section lines and they came on horseback through virgin wilderness. Of course the, the Native Americans were here. They had signed treaties and were leaving. They had signed treaties and that they were to go west of the Mississippi, but they were still there. And so they went through and found, and found this place and liked it so well. It was the site of a Native American village which was disseminated by that time. It was a 
a navigable stream at that time. It's a smaller stream now, the water level's lower. And there was a never failing spring, which was well known because it had never, ever, it never has failed, still waters their cattle. And that was there. And there was a settler family there. They were what were known as squatters. But they had cleared some land and had a, a log cabin. So he decided that this was the land that they wanted. They paid the, the Gruels, the squatters, $500, which was a good sum and a very generous thing for what they had done. And they stayed with them that winter, this, with the Gruels, and they had a, a bigger log cabin built and at, on the site. And when the land office opened down in Brookville, Indiana, he was the third in line and, and bought the land that we're still sitting on the 160 acres. And how much was the land at that time? At $1.25. Of course, that was a big $1.25, bigger than what it is now per acre. And how many Arnold generations have lived on this land? I think it's six. Did We counted that out, didn't we? I think it's six. Uh -huh. John Arnold in, from England, the first, the second, Dr. John Arnold, the second, his son, John the third, and his son, my husband's dad, my, and my husband, yeah. So we're the, the fifth, I married into the fifth generation. So how did you and Clarence meet? We sat next to each other in college in the logic class. Now, isn't that logical? And I went to sleep and dropped my pencil, and he picked it up and handed it to me. <laughs> and I went home, I was keeping a silly teenage diary, and I said, cute guy sits next to me in logic. And that was how it all began. <laughs> but you were a farm girl before you had met yes, Claire. Yes, uh -huh. yeah, not from Rush County. I was from the, another part of Indiana, Hendricks County. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what was life like after you moved onto the Arnold farm? Well, we moved up on his aunt had a, a, some, a farm that was available for rent, so we were renters. And we lived in the tenant house, which, which was a nice house. It, was, it had a furnace. I had never had a furnace in my life. It was wonderful. But uh, we had uh, corn soybeans and we raised hogs and we had milk cows. We, my husband milked cows for several years, not as extensive. My dad was a dairy farmer. He had like 20 cows. We had about four or five and we used their milk and pasteurized it ourselves. There was no pasteurization. And we sold the cream then at a cream station in town. So talk about how the land has grown. So you started with 160 acres and you now have 700 acres uh -huh. mm -hmm. and that you're raising, you're renting out some of the ground and then raising livestock as well. Yes, uh-huh. Plus what the kids are doing with right. their farmer's market on it. So we've, yes. And that, well, that was incremental, the, uh, the 160. Well, the first John had other land, but he had three children, so that, that was split up. But the, 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 uh, this land always came through, stayed in the, somebody's in the hand. In a John Arnold, actually, it came through. But, there, but then when we, when my father-in-law took it over, he had this 160 back to the original, because he had eight brothers and sisters, and at the time everything's divided out, you know. But his family, those brothers and sisters, were very anxious to see the fam, this family, the 160, kept together. And they were all went together and, and said, I've got my little tears from the little nose drop here too. They, they all gave up their 
he, he paid them off eventually, but they did. They were not. They they said several of them said, "I don't need the money now," and so he was able to purchase this hundred and sixty, which kept it with you know that many children. It would have been very likely sold and and the money split, so that was kept on. And so then it was he only had two children, and there was my husband and his brother, and so the we kept it. We were able to keep it together. In the meantime. Uh, my husband and his brother were acquiring more land as it came up for sale. Some of it lay around us in another another section, one road over, just bit by bit, federal land bank and, and uh, been saving and uh, turning some of the money back into more land. That was our savings account was more land. So talk about the livestock. Well, there's been all sorts of livestock <laughs> over the years. The uh, first John, some or the second, I don't know, maybe it's Dr. John, maybe it was the third John, somebody had sheep, because I have, in my kitchen, I have all those sheep bells, and they, they, they kept them because, of course, the very first farmers with their stock, the hogs ran wild in the, in the woods, and then they were notched in their ears, and then they were rounded up and driven down to Cincinnati, which is, it was at that time the nearest market town. Indianapolis was a, a burning. And uh, they all, everybody, everybody had a cow or two for milk. Others had more than that. And various, various hogs have all turned in later years. That for after probably down to the third John, hogs were there's a lot of hogs grown in Indiana. At <clears throat> one time, they were the biggest uh, state for hogs. We ourselves, uh, Jake and I, had had hogs for years. Uh, and um, and everybody. Some people, a few people had uh, dairies, but in this in this area, it was more just a, a, a couple of cows, so what you had. But well, what we have here now are beef cattle, because we have the, the creek and the woods, that uh, the springy parts that uh, are, cannot be cultivated, or we won't, we won't get rid of any more. And so the uh, cattle make good sense for that because they graze and, and have the, their babies out there and uh, we feed them and they, you know, give them their extra supplement and, and help them through and get the veterinarian when they need it. But they're really uh, utilizing the, uh, the wooded area, which we greatly value. We greatly value the meadow and the wood, wooded and the stream that runs through the, the property. After John was gone, and we, <clears throat> my my husband and and his brother had helped Leslie. She tried to stay and farm for two years, and they helped her. And but when she just couldn't do it, she just she had children, and she machinery was not anything that she could work with. And she finally gave up and went back to Iowa where she was raised. And so then we rented out all the farm the farmland, and we still lived here. And then my brother-in-law and my husband both died and you know, the farming was only with good friends and, and neighbors who were who were renters but but there was just the heart of the farming was gone their tractors only came in once in a while and it was and then when Emma and Oak decided to come back and there were tractors and there were people with caps and there was things going on and and the ground was being turned and they were bringing in vegetables and uh, and then and then the continuity of it all to have the family coming on. Then they had children, and they named their second little one John Arnold, Luca John Arnold Hawk, and got the little guys running around, and it just was a, a, a blood transfusion for the farming. 
After this short break, Eleanor's granddaughter, Emma Hawk, shares her story of coming back to the farm. Farming can bring a new challenge each and every day. But you didn't get into this life for predictability. You were born to farm. And so was the Massey Ferguson 6S Series tractor. But the power, traction, and maneuverability to tackle everything from field work to transport, loading, and yard operations, the MF6S Series is the perfect partner, even when you don't know what the day will bring. Learn more today at MasseyFerguson.com. In 2017, life circumstances brought the seventh generation back to the farm. Eleanor's granddaughter, Emma Hawk, and her husband, Oak, were living in Vermont. When they came back, Emma and Oak took over a small area on the farm to grow vegetables. As their business grew, so did the couple's needs for more land. In 2018, Emma and Oak started to farm a 16-acre field across from the farmstead, growing a mix of produce, garlic, kale, peppers, and herbs. What made you sort of come back from Vermont and decide to take back over the farm, or not take back over the farm, but make the decision to come in and do farming here? Yeah, it was really, I think, a big part of it was wanting to be back with our family, and we were interested in agriculture, and it was really kind of just like all of these life pieces falling in place for us that was just like, the thing that it makes sense for us to do is come back and farm. Mm -hmm. And you said your husband studied? Yes, he studied, um, he got his master's from Green Mountain College in sustainable agriculture mm -hmm. and local food systems. Awesome. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest influence that Granny has had on me is how to be a good mom and also a part of the farm. Mm -hmm. It's because all of the, they're all, the family farming, it's all one, it's all so tied together. And so I think Granny has always handled that where everything is important. The family is important, the farm is important, and it's hard to find that balance, and she has always been great at it, and always so loving, so sweet, so caring, such a like beacon of leadership and greatness in our family. So, I, I mean, it is 1,000% because of Granny that we can farm. Like she helped us with our startup funds to get like a tractor because all, they had sold off all of the tractors and stuff when John had died. So it was like, you know, we needed some startup funds and she was like, you know, this is what's important to me is the farm family. And it's what's important to me too. So it's like, you know, she needed us to do the work. We needed a little capital and that's how we moved back basically. Mm -hmm. If you had one memory on this farm and, and as, a, as a farm kid that was your favorite. What, what, what do you think that is? I think like the creek. This whole like area, the pasture, the creek, that is just like we finished eating and we would go spend hours on, in the creek. But I think my favorite memory as like a more adult farmer is there was one time my husband Oak and I were taking the engine off of our G and we we're using like my grandpa's engine hoist. And I just had like this crazy feeling. It was like never in his life, cause he died before we started farming. I was like, never in his life did he think I would be the one in this room using his engine hoist. And then I swear I smelled like diesel which is like he always smelled like diesel and it was just like such a warm memory of like him and like really appreciating everything that like literally every generation of our family has built 
and now we get to be a part of it and I want to like make it as good as we can so that our kids can have like those same memories and it can be a meaningful thing for all of us. Maintaining this as a family farm, a working family farm and I just want them to learn to like appreciate that and to like see that as an inspiration to work hard because clearly all the Arnolds were working hard to do this like they all were very cool people and all had like big ideas I think that's what's cool about like learning about the different generations is I feel like there's they're us you know they're like the things that they're they're always interested in conservation they were always interested in history always interested in historic preservation and I think just I want my kids to sort of maintain that culture of like interest, curiosity, learning, all of that and stewardship for this land. Um, in sort of thinking toward the future, what legacy are you hoping to, to leave um, for your kids when it comes to, to thinking about farming? I think I want my kids to have the same experience that I had growing up of like being surrounded by this like so much history, so much love, so much knowledge of our past and of our ancestors which I think gives you this really good sense of like who you are who your family is kind of where you fit into the world mm -hmm. and I also want our kids like I see them learning about like making change at the market Oliver just understands totally like the plant cycle of plants like he just they just see so much and learn so much and for me that's what I want for them in the farm. After this short break, Emma's husband, Oak Hawk, talks about the sustainability he practices on the farm. With the latest Gleaner Combines, we make machines with the features farmers want and nothing they don't. Lower weight, higher efficiency, less downtime, cleaner bin samples. You know, the things that actually matter when it comes time to harvest. We've been doing it for a hundred years and we'll do it for the next hundred. Because at Gleaner, what matters to the farmer is all that matters to us. Visit Gleaner.com today to learn more. Oak Hawk brings a farm management style that is a mix of past practices combined with modern innovations to improve soil health. For example, a section of the field planted to produce one year will be planted cover crops the next. To keep weeds at bay, they cultivate using a 1954 Alice Chalmers, converted from gas to electric. They also plant buckwheat cover crops because their abundant blossoms attract beneficial insects and pollinators. When we started out, it was really kind of just what we had grown before in gardens, or I worked on farms growing up, so like what I had some experience with, and then also just what we'd seen at farmer's market, what other people were growing, and um, you know what we knew folks might be eating. Um, in the five years or so since then, we've really kind of dug in and focused a lot more on um, you know, what we think sells really well, what we think grows well on our soil. You know, we've had five years of experience seeing like what grows well, what doesn't grow well, what we struggle with. Um, some of that's the soil, some of that's us. So it's, it's parsing that out, like what causes what. It can be, is essentially impossible, but you know, you gotta you got try. Um, and then the other thing we've been introducing a lot more the last like couple years is just like what we really like growing, like what we're really like passionate about. So like, um, like bell peppers and kind of specialty sweet peppers. We just, we really like growing them. They seem to grow well, well here. And so it sort of checked enough boxes that we were like, let's go with peppers. Mm -hmm. um, so we've kind of expanded that and then backed off a little bit on some of the crops. Like 
uh, anything that is really like labor intensive, like um, fresh greens, uh, green beans, anything you have to like spend a lot, like that needs to be picked by hand or washed a lot, um, just has not been working very well for us the last couple years, just not without, without um, a big labor force, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so you sell this at farmer's markets, right? We sell at farmer's markets. Um, we do a little bit of direct to restaurant sales, and then we sell um, through like an online um, farmer-owned cooperative. So we kind of take a very holistic uh, approach to, to sustainability. Um, it has like environmental components as far as we're concerned, but also like economic and cultural components in that, well, economically, we gotta make the, the books work for us to keep farming. So, so that's really important to us and we're not there yet. I mean, like we've only been doing this for five years. Um, we're really in the growth kind of capitalization stage where we're having to buy a lot of equipment and retool and those kind of things. Um, so getting the land paying for itself is like number one for sustainability for us, or the first step, maybe not number one. And then um, in terms of more like farming, like what kind of pra specific practices we use, again, we really look at the farm as a whole, whole thing. So like we're growing our crops in the field, but the forest is right there, the pasture is right there. Um, there's different ecosystem. You know, we look at the farm as an ecosystem and the field is really just one part of that ecosystem. And that's the part that we generate income from mostly and it's, it's where we put a lot of energy into, but it's really supported by all those other ecosystems. Um, so in terms of environmental practices, number one is just to look at the farm as an ecosystem and lead, you know, try not to think of it just in terms of dollar productivity or even pound productivity and more think of it as like what is the whole farm doing so like the woods may not be creating dollars right now they they, they do sometimes when we harvest you know when we harvest timber and things like that but they're, they're not going to create dollars for the farm this year but they are contributing they're contributing uh, they provide habitat for beneficial insects and predators and like birds and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they also, it also just takes pressure off the land. You know, when, when it's not, when you're not farming every single square inch, it just um, lets the natural systems kind of provide, kind of help do their own thing a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of specific like farming practices that we use, um, we do a lot of cover cropping. So we, we try to pretty much, if we can have a crop in the ground all the year, all year round, we want to. That's not, or I, I guess that's not, we keep, have a, have a crop growing with roots in the ground as much as possible and you know, at any, any time. And um, sometimes that's a cover crop, sometimes it's a cash crop, sometimes it's just like those dry, you know, the drive lanes and things like that. Those are all kind of part of the, the sustainable practices. Um, what are some other things we do? We do crop rotation. We do really extensive crop, like lengthy crop rotations. So um, we try not to grow the same crop or the same family of crop in, in um, one spot for more than, uh, we, we try to have it be about like five or six years between when a, a crop family is in an area. And that's, um, it's, that it seems like that might be a little tricky, um, except that you consider like, um, you know, hay can count towards that, or a cover crop can count towards that, or um, resting it for a year can count towards that. So we, um, we use about, as you saw, we'll use about a half or a third of our field, and then the rest is just gonna get all planted to a cover crop. Mm -hmm. um, 
and oftentimes that's a perennial. We're, we're kind of deciding whether we want to do uh, like one year in production, one year cover crop, or like a couple years in production and then a couple years in a cover crop. The advantage of the latter being that we can then we can use a perennial cover crop as well as annuals, and those can do some. Their root systems are a little different, and they can kind of dig down a little bit deeper. And then also. Uh, you know, if we put a perennial crop, cash crop in, or a perennial cover crop in, we, we can do that once and then have it be there, you know, benefiting the soil for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, other things we do are we plant um, like beneficial, uh, or plant crops specifically for beneficial insects. Um, the buckwheat actually, which is what's in there, is a, a one that we really rely on because it grows super fast and it, um, you know, provides a really nice flower for beneficial insects. We've started installing what are called um, beetle banks, which is, have you heard of those? It's basically like a long um, perennial grassy strip that goes through the field and you don't, you mow it like the first year, but after that you kind of just let it go. And what that does is it provides habitat for these ground beetles that are um, just voracious predators. They just eat bugs like crazy. And the other, they actually eat weed seeds too, which is a very, very nice thing when you're farming organically, because that is where we are definitely, you know, a little bit limited on tools. Sustainability, you know, what that means can be so many different things to different people. And there's a lot of focus on um, not disturbing the soil, on, on not doing tillage, um, you know, basically not touching the soil. And mechanical cultivation kind of flies in the face of that. So there are there is a camp that says you know essentially that that is not sustainable or a less sustainable practice because it is um, disturbing the soil frequently, yeah. <laughs> really even more. I think again it's more about the big picture to me, and so like yes I'm disturbing where I'm growing my crop very much, but then there's this whole other big parts of the farm that are never getting touched at all. They're never getting driven on, they're never getting messed with, they're just, you know, there. So um, I, I, think, I think mechanical cultivation can be, can, very much can be sustainable and can play a huge role in a sustainable farm. And it's, it's it, like, talk, go back to the economic aspect of things. If we couldn't keep the weeds under control, which at times we've not been able to, then it all, you know, everything goes out the, out the window. If we can't keep the, you know, the lights on and the tractors running, um, that's not sustainable either. So um, sustainability for us is always a balance. I think for everybody, it's a balance. You know, it's just, there's no such thing as like, this is the sustainable way to do things. But for me, it's about, you know, is Oliver gonna be able to do what I'm doing? Is Oliver, and even, he doesn't even need to be doing the same thing as I'm doing. I don't think, I don't see sustainability as like replication. You know, it's more, it, it, uh, is he gonna have the opportunity that I have? Is, is his, are his children gonna have the opportunity that I have? And you know, there's, uh, I know the native saying of like seven generations forward. I would really like to think that seven generations, this is gonna be here and there's gonna be an opportunity for our family and hopefully other families too. Like, um, and that's actually another thing that um, is important to us in terms of sustainability is like our, our, our community and our culture. And um, that's something that I really want to work on. Like I, I know I mentioned yesterday about how there used to be a lot more people on this ground 100 years ago. And I, I think part of us being sustainable in the future is kind of going back that direction. Like I would love to get to where there was another family on this farm doing 
you know, another type of operation, something that we don't have the skills for or the inclination towards. Mm -hmm. um, because really, honestly, if, if this land is going to continue and this is going to continue to be a farming community, we need more people here. There's not enough people. The, knowledge, the amount of knowledge that gets passed down from one generation to another is staggering and almost impossible to account for. Mm -hmm. And that is, I, that is, I'm so acutely aware of that because of the generational gaps that we have here. I never met John, obviously. He was, you know, died way before I was here. Um, I did meet Clarence and I got to know him a little bit, but it was only when I, you know, had first met Emma. And it, once, a, there's not well, a week that goes by where I wish I couldn't talk to one of those guys. And, and it's just, it's not even just the knowledge of like, this is how you farm, or this is like something that's particular about this field that you need to know. It's just the like the whole the sense of place and the whole like, um, uh, you know, this is how we live on this land and th and this is how we respect this land and this is how we um, you know interact with it and the relationship that we have with the land. That's something that a family passes on, and I think it's something that develops and, and grows over time. Um, and when you lose a family farm, you lose that. You know, like we have these records and I go through and I find all these amazing things. So we have kind of like a plan B, um, but 99% of farms don't have that. And um, the, just the amount of knowledge that we're losing annually is just staggering to me. And it, again, it's not that specific. It's not the like, this is the best way to grow corn in this field. It's the like, oh, there was a spring there, or oh, this is what that was used for 100 years ago, or this is you know, where there was, um, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's, it, it's, it's so subtle and so pervasive that it's, it's really hard to even account for. Mm. It's the kind of, because it's not the kind of thing that gets written down in a family history. It's the, it's the kind of thing that you, you, you chat and you, you know, that's around the dinner table, or it's like, oh, I was walking through the woods and I saw this thing, and then it's like, oh, it's, it's that. And, I saw that, and my father saw that, and my, his father saw that, and all that kind of thing. So, um, I just it breaks my heart to think of what we could be losing from that, and so it's really, really, really important. I think if I could say one thing to Granny, I would say thank you. Like she just for everything, for literally always being there throughout my life. Like if I ever called her, for sure she would help me with anything I needed 1000% mm -hmm. and she's always been there she's just so supportive so sweet like so generous and I think like this wouldn't exist without granny without her ideas even like it was her idea to support my brother in starting it up and then it was her idea really for us to move back like she was like if you guys move back you guys I will help you guys get started farming so it's really 100% because of Granny that we are here in farming. So if you could leave our listeners and our readers with one thing about Arnold Farms, what do you want them to remember about the heritage and the history of the Arnold family? Well, as a, coming into it, I was struck by their what nice people they were, uh, hardworking, and so honest, and but yet so kind and fun-loving. We always had lots of fun, and uh, I think that I just thought they were just wonderful people. They were good community-minded people. Always took took play a part in the community, not so much as elected office, but in in the volunteer kind of thing. 
And of course, Dr. John was well, well remembered for the fact that he was just simply a good pioneer physician. But uh, I, he said to do one thing, and here I am just rambling on about several things, but I, I think the fact that their background was here and they were well known and respected and that they led fine lives has been a benefit to the community, certainly been a benefit to me. This podcast was brought to you by Massey Ferguson, building the equipment for those born to farm for 175 years. Thank you to Eleanor Arnold and Emma and Oak Hawk for being our guests today. For Successful Farming, I'm David Ekstrom.